Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by the Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name's Rosie Alsop. I'm Communications Director at We Are Guernsey, the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. And today I am delighted to be speaking with Bruce Howard, Director at Ecosystems Knowledge Network. And today, among other topics in the climate finance space, we'll be focusing on biodiversity. Welcome, Bruce. Well, Rosie, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to have you on the podcast. Now, uh, could we start by introducing you to our listeners? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your career to date? Yes, uh, so delighted to. The, uh, my career began uh, centred on the avoiding avoidance of harm uh, to the environment. I trained uh, originally in plant science and went on to be uh, concerned with uh, pollutants, particularly um, heavy metals in the environment. And in the start of my career, we were very focused on harm and avoiding uh, harm to uh, to the, the environment and where there had been uh, some harm, some contamination, thinking as to how that could be uh, remediated. But now in the second part of my career, which I have to say is much more exciting, we're focused on, I'm focused on the positives. If we restore the natural environment, what good does it do uh, in society? What does it do for people's well-being and prosperity? So it's a career of two halves, uh, but during that career I've worked in local governments, in private consultancy for a university, and now I'm running the charitable initiative, the Ecosystems Knowledge Network. So it's a little tour of me so far. That's great. Thank you so much. Now, natural capital, biodiversity and nature positive investments are relatively new terms that are mainstreaming quite quickly. And so for anyone who's not as familiar with biodiversity and the risks and opportunities, could you explain for our listeners what biodiversity means and and why we should be protecting it and investing in nature? Yes. So, Rosie, uh, environmental people have lots of terms to that they use to explain why they're concerned uh, about our surroundings, about uh, land and marine habitat and such like. Some of these terms that they use are old. They've been around for a while, like nature and biodiversity. And some are new, like, for example, the term natural capital to refer to nature and its value. But to answer your question, though, biodiversity is one of the terms and it describes the variety uh, that's found in the natural world at every scale, from genetic code to whole habitats like woodland and coral reef. So biodiversity is about variety. And that variety matters, not just because it's appealing to people, but because it means resilience. If you just have one of something, generally, you have problems. But in diversity is found resilience. Biodiversity, though, is often 
taken as a tag word for everything that's out there in the natural world. So in schools and offices, it's now used as a term for the state of nature in general, not just the number of microbes that you could count on in a teaspoon of soil or water, or the number of tree species that you could count in a hectare of forest. Uh, we've got lots of words to describe food. We might call it cuisine or fare or meals. And the same is true for the environment. And biodiversity is just one of those terms. But it's very important because we've got an international convention, the Convention on Biological Diversity, that's all about it. And in recent years, we've had uh, the Dasgupta review of the economics of biodiversity. So you just mentioned the Dasgupta review. Can you tell us a little more about Professor Dasgupta and his work? Yes. So the last few decades have been punctuated by big reports on the state of nature. So we had, for example, over 20 years ago now, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. And then we've had uh, the TEAB report, the Economics of the Environment and Biodiversity uh, report, uh, Dasgupta, and this, this review that he published uh, last February, February 2021, was another one of those big moments. Uh, but unusually, it wasn't initiated by an environmental organisation, uh, a report uh, prompted by environmental people, but it was initiated by a finance ministry, and in particular, uh, the Treasury for the UK government. Uh, I was surprised that it used that term biodiversity, that's the economics of biodiversity review, because biodiversity is a bit of a technical term. But when you read the review of Professor Partha Dasgupta, who's a economist, eminent economist at the University of Cambridge, you, when you read it, you'll see his review is all about the natural envir environment in every dimension. Uh, it's all about making nature visible uh, for human well-being. The challenge, of course, with, with all these reports that keep coming out is keeping them alive. Economic analysis of the environment, uh, which we find in, in this report, it only gets us so far. Uh, economists use complex methods to generate eye-watering figures for what changes in the condition of a natural feature are worth, natural features like a public park or even a, a vast ocean. But the conversation about finance and nature, I think now is one of the most fertile and urgent. Professor Dasgupta recognized this in his review, and it's great that uh, Guernsey, Green Finance, are on the case with this as well. Uh, that's great to hear, and I absolutely agree with you, that conversation about finance and nature being, as you say, fertile and urgent. Um, and I hope that, thanks to your explanation, our listeners can understand what natural capital is and the economics behind biodiversity. Um, can you tell me, what are some of the investable opportunities for those who are interested in pursuing nature-positive investment strategies? Yes, so it is early days in terms of those um, investable nature-positive uh, opportunities 
uh, coming uh, around. But uh, whilst it might be just a drip drip of projects at the moment, it, it's clear to me, having looked at this field for the last four or five years, that that drip drip is going to turn into an attractive project pipeline. At the moment in the UK, at least, which is the, uh, the area that I focused on with the Ecosystems Knowledge Network, we have a whole variety of landowners, private, public, and uh, non-profit, third sector, all now interested in new forms of revenue. So that means not just uh, revenue relating to tourism or food or timber, but revenue relating to carbon and reducing nutrient loss and um, uh, providing biodiversity net gain. So that's a way in which if you lose biodiversity in one place, you can make sure you get it back uh, in another. So there is now widespread interest in these new revenue streams. And that's great to see. But uh, what we don't yet have, or what we have very few of, are projects that have turned that appetite for new revenue into new business uh, businesses. There are some, and there are some very exciting uh, schemes uh, around uh, these islands, uh, which are now happening, and finances is beginning to uh, uh, to flow. But it, it's it's very much uh, early days, and that's because we've got a myriad of different landowners all looking around for the revenue opportunities. We don't yet have the scale, but the moment that we begin to put together these these landowners um, into coordinated packages, then the investable opportunities will be substantial. So thank you for that. It's fascinating to hear about those investable schemes within nature-based finance. Can you tell us about some of the more specific projects that you're seeing um, and what's the state of the environmental restoration project pipeline uh, in, in Europe? Yes. So uh, I have the pleasure in my job of being able to, to look around certainly the UK and beyond to find the most exciting projects and to make those uh, discoverable. The ones that I'm most excited about are still relatively small scale, but um, they are certainly pioneering. So I would refer you to the uh, wire catchment uh, natural flood management project in Lancashire, in England, that's WIRE, W-Y-R-E. And this is a partnership between uh, the Rivers Trust that looks, looks after this uh, river wire and um, Floodry, which is a reinsurer, the local water utility, uh, United Utilities and um, Co-op Insurance and uh, the Environment Agency uh, to develop a scheme, to develop a business basically that sells uh, flood risk reduction uh, and uh, it's estimated that within this catchment, the uh, relatively small catchment in, in Lancashire, the economic cost to insurers of flooding is at least in the order of £2 million uh, and a year. And therefore, we're looking at ways of reducing that exposure. And there is now a uh, scheme uh, that's attracted uh, just under a £1 million of repairable finance a nine-year project 
which is uh, uh, bringing together those people who need flood risk reduction with the landowners who can provide it, and particularly the Rivers Trust. So that's a very exciting uh, project. Uh, social investment tax relief has formed uh, part of the ability to, to raise uh, the finance uh, there. So uh, that's the, the wire. Uh, in looking to Scotland, there are some ex exciting schemes, particularly uh, in relation to investment crowdfunding. So we can look at um, the work of Highland Rewilding, and they have been able to raise seven and a half million pounds uh, to secure uh, sites for rewilding. And that's been done by a whole mix of different uh, investors. It's open to citizens as well as um, philanthropists and, and others. And that's a very exciting project because that's looking at not just creating a highlands environment that's thriving for nature, but also one that offers employment opportunities as well and begins to make sure that Scottish rural communities are thriving and they're looking at revenue opportunities uh, through the carbon in particular. So uh, those are just two, two schemes I would uh, identify around uh, the world. There's all sorts of exciting work which the Nature Conservancy is doing, including, for example, in Norfolk, England, uh, with uh, biodiversity net gain. Uh, and uh, we can also look uh, further afield to the US and environmental impact bonds are really big there. That's just a way of ensuring that uh, financiers and the project provider are brought together and share the risk, which inevitably there is when you're trying to reduce flood risk, for example, um, the outcomes are sometimes uncertain. Uh, so there's lots of exciting work going on around the world. Uh, our challenge is to make it discoverable so people can learn and we can begin to scale up. That's it, I hope we replicate what, mm -hmm. uh, what's being done. They, they sound really fascinating, um, thank you. Now, one of the things we normally do on this podcast is ask our guests to, uh, to, to sort of talk around the outcomes of COP26, but uh, you're, you're slightly different because nature has its own COP, COP15, and this is clearly your specialism. Uh, so can you, um, let's have a chat about that. What do you think that COP15 might achieve and why it's different from COP26, Bruce? Sure. Uh, I think uh, a lot of these uh, conferences of the parties of these big international uh, agreements, uh, it's not so much about actually what's signed during the week of negotiations, but it's about the, uh, the narrative. It's about the story and bringing the public uh, on board with these issues. And I'm sure that will be the case at uh, COP15. It obviously was the case at uh, COP26. It was as much a, a sort of citizens um, uh, conference uh, as it was for the, uh, the political representatives and the civil servants uh, who were there. But uh, if at COP15, uh, what remains of, of COP15, we just have environmentalists and politicians banging the lectern with tales of woe and destruction of the world's nature, um, or just issuing new dreams of harmony between people and nature, 
uh, I think we will have failed. So the story is important uh, here, but uh, I think the um, the big thing will be making, well, and the big thing I expect will be that uh, just as at COP26, we saw climate being linked to the condition of nature, I think at COP15, we will see the plight of the world's nature being connected with the plight of the world's climate. So uh, I think that will be really important. Uh, but I really do hope that um, there will be an interest at COP15, again, in the finance side of nature. We, uh, and, and that there will be a greater understanding of the supply chain dependencies that we all have, citizens or organizations or governments, um, supply chain dependencies on the state of nature around, world, around the world. And I particularly hope that citizens will begin to see that their own personal finance, their pensions they hold, the savings uh, and, and such like, are in, uh, intimately linked with the condition of nature around the world. And so that, that connection between personal finance and nature, I think, is a, is a fantastic opportunity. And I really hope that will be taken uh, at COP15. So hopefully that gives you a flavour of uh, what I hope it will achieve, a change in the narrative, uh, yes, but also some particular action in terms of finance. It would be very interesting to see what the outcomes are. Now, um, you may be aware that in Guernsey, our uh, financial services regulator, the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, uh, launched the world's first regulated green fund regime um, into verified green projects back in 2018, and which now channels more than 4.9 billion into verified green projects. Um, now, in the last week or so, we're very proud to have just launched another world first in proposing a natural capital fund regime. Um, the intentions are to direct capital to biodiversity and natural capital investments. And we're hoping it will also provide investors with the confidence that their investments into these funds are going to economically viable business models that are aligned to international standards on reporting and nature-based targets, uh, which will ensure transparency, good governance and mitigate the risk of greenwashing. We've seen that leaders in biodiversity finance have been calling for greater private investment and regulation to protect and restore the natural world. What do you think are the main challenges for well-managed environmental markets? Um, and maybe talk around some of the opportunities and the methods to overcome those challenges. Great. Well, thanks for, for asking. I'm involved in an initiative, uh, a UK initiative called Financing UK Nature Recovery. At the moment, it's a process that's been going on for the last uh, couple of years. Uh, over 300 organisations, public, private, third and academic sector uh, have been involved in this discussion about what it would mean to have high integrity environmental markets uh, operating, uh, serving both the, uh, the land environment, but, but also uh, offshore as well. And uh, this is really important that we get this right, because if the, uh, 
the, the, the transactions that there are, the sales and purchases of credits, whether those are carbon credits or biodiversity credits, uh, or whatever that, that there might be environmental offering is, we've got to make sure that it's equitable, that it's um, it's transparent, that people, everybody from citizens to uh, to the actual buyers will uh, uh, will all kind of agree that this is working for nature. The stakes are also very high because the more we see, the more we think about it, public finance is never going to restore nature. Uh, it's just simply impossible to imagine anywhere in the world where uh, public finance would be sufficient to bring nature back to uh, a position where it's thriving and therefore kind of doing what it should for our economies. So these uh, environmental markets are important. Um, what we need, uh, well, the multiple things we need, we need to make sure that we have the, the standards and the codes that are, everybody agrees on um, re uh, and are, are reliable to represent the improvements in the environment. Uh, we already have uh, a woodland carbon code and a peatland code, but um, they need to keep up with advances in uh, monitoring. So if you're looking at how much carbon is actually locked up, not just in the trees in woodland, but in the woodland as a whole, the soils beneath and the, and the, and the trees above, um, the uh, there's there's a lot of advance there are a lot of advances in technology there so these even the standards and codes that we've got have got to be kept up to date but we need others as well so salt marsh for example fantastic at storing uh carbon from the atmosphere but we don't have a code for a salt marsh project so we know it's reliable and it really is doing what it says it will in terms of carbon sequestration the same for farm soils as well. Uh, there is a code in development, but we've got to fast track these codes and make sure that they talk to one another. Because, of course, if we're investing in the farmed environment, there may be bits of woodland under the woodland code. There may be carbon in farm soils that needs to be uh, taken into account. Um, we need all these codes to, to talk to one another. Um, so the codes and standards are, uh, piece is very important as well. We need to get the, the monitoring and verification right. At the moment, it's very expensive to verify that the, the carbon really is there or that the nutrient loss has been avoided. But uh, we need to make sure that our national data in any, uh, any country uh, can um, quickly provide both buyers and sellers with the data they need to be reassured of the, the outcomes. Uh, and we also need government to set principles as well so that all this trading is equitable. And that's very important. Scotland has taken the lead with its uh, interim principles on uh, responsible investment in nature. Uh, but we need to see more detail on that so that as all these financial transactions happen in environmental markets, um, the uh, beneficiaries uh, are actually the, the stewards of the land and the rural communities uh, that, that are present. So hopefully that we're, we're, th these environmental markets are going to be uh, 
you know, accelerating. And now is a challenge to make sure that within uh, the different parts of the UK, in uh, other countries as well, and worldwide, that um, the environmental markets aren't the Wild West, but actually uh, something that everybody would agree on are uh, restoring nature, delivering impact, and underpinning projects that are investable as well. Which, you know, ultimately they have to be able to do. Now, turning to the Ecosystems Knowledge Network, can you explain uh, a little bit about the history of the organisation and the work that it does? Sure, yes. So I've had the pleasure of leading this uh, organisation ever since it was set up by government in Westminster uh, and also Scottish government uh, involved as well. And uh, the challenge that was put to us back in 2011 when we, we started out is the challenge we still work on today. There are lots of policy papers now which are talking up the value of nature. Uh, telling us that the environment is important, not just for its own sake, uh, but also for people's well-being and prosperity. Back in 2011, there was an environment white paper for England, and that's when we were set up. And we were asked, please, would we show the white paper in action? Uh, this white paper called Securing the Value of Nature. And... Uh, along with, with government elsewhere in the UK, we set up as a network to put a spotlight on the, the innovation that connects the environment with well-being and prosperity. And that we've continued to do over the last 10 years as an independent, impartial organisation. We respect expertise wherever it lies in the in the in the nonprofits, in um, in businesses, water utilities, um, power companies, highways agencies, whatever it might be, uh, we're looking for uh, clever things, things that connect uh, environmental restoration with uh, pressing issues like increasing flood risk, for example, or uh, in the need for, to improve public health. So we're in, we're in the business of sharing uh, understanding. We have a network of 3,000 professionals across the UK and beyond, people in Guernsey uh, and uh, many other places around the world as well. And uh, But we're, we're, a, we're a positive organisation. We don't ever get involved in, in the negatives, the stories of nature's decline. We're interested in, well, if we got the finance right and the partnerships right, how could we actually restore nature and actually everybody be better off as a result so that's that's the network and we've been working on this uh nature-based finance question for the last five years or no it's just no, also it's just one element of our our work okay so um you've been working as you said to tackle environmental uh, related issues for the past 14 years what do you think's changed the most in terms of how the public views the environment um and what do you think is driving the change and this investment into nature okay yeah so a lot uh, has changed um so the i think we're seeing now the power of data, uh, data that connects the 
things that people do and the things that they consume with the condition of land, water, and, and nature. So we can look at a parcel of land now anywhere in the world, and it is possible to determine which financial services uh, organizations have an interest in that parcel of land. It's also possible to work out which um, uh, other types of, of business uh, have an interest in that land, particularly in relation to food and fiber and timber. You can uh, trace virtually any consumer product around the world and back to some bit of habitat, some place. So we've seen that we're, we're, we're very rich in data now, and that's, um, that's a really big and positive change. I think another change that's happened over the years, we, we used to, sort of when I started out my, my career, you know, decades ago now, there was this polluter pays idea that we had to identify the businesses that really were the source of, of environmental problems, and we had to do something about uh, those businesses. They were the polluters. But now I think uh, that there is a realization because of the data and, and the media effort that, in a sense, every citizen, you and I and everybody else, we're, we're all polluters in one sense. We all have some impact on the, the natural environment. Uh, and I think we're beginning to face up to that reality. So this idea of polluter pays is is uh, has been is severely challenged now, uh, I think. Um, but what we don't have yet, and I'm looking forward to, I think we're on the cusp of it, is the idea that every citizen, yes, has impacts on the environment, but they're also a potential restorer of nature. Through the product choices they uh, make, they can not just avoid harm and guilt, but they can drive good and be proud of it. And, and you'll recall I mentioned uh, investment crowdfunding um, before, the opportunity to involve all sorts of people in restoring nature. So uh, in short, the big change is access to data. Uh, we still have a lot of people who go on about reversing nature's decline, and they seem to talk about a moment when we'll get there. And somehow through their campaigns, through their, their sort of advocacy, and through enough public finance, we'll suddenly have this blossoming moment when, hooray, we have nature back. I don't think it will be like that. Um, I think by just focusing on the decline, we're not going to get very far. What we must think much more of, coming back to Das Gupta that I mentioned at the beginning, is think about the, the positive economic case for restoring nature. So that we haven't got yet, but we're on the cusp of it. We're very proud of our work so far with Guernsey Green Finance, Guernsey's initiative for greening the financial system. We are an integral member of the United Nations Financial Centres for Sustainability, and we've recently launched the world's first fund regime, as I mentioned before. Our regulator has recently joined the TNFD forum. Uh, however, we accept there is always more that can be done. Um, what, in your view, Bruce, could Guernsey do next? Well, I think uh, important to say uh, that uh, you're already doing uh, a lot in terms of your leadership, and we're really pleased to see 
that uh, you've got your sights set on the natural capital fund and you've embraced the the, the nature positive uh, agenda uh, but yes there's always there's always more uh, I think, uh, as I've mentioned at a number of points in our conversation, uh, there is opportunity to engage citizens in nature-positive finance. Uh, we've got to think about personal finance and its relationship uh, with nature. Um, we can also do more to show the power of finance in securing what often people refer to as a green recovery. As we come out of the, the pandemic, people are looking for new economic opportunities. And I, so I think we don't, we, when we talk about uh, finance and nature positive, it's not just about the habitat and the species. It's about people. It's about rural economies, about local communities, and all the, the economic opportunities that come when they thrive. So uh, my suggestion would be, don't just focus on the, the kind of the hard-nosed biodiversity. Think about nature and people together. Um, I'd also, of course, suggest uh, being the one who's always on the lookout for uh, projects in this emergent pipeline uh, to initiate some projects at home uh, among the beautiful landscapes and the marine habitat that you have in uh, the Bailiwick. So and now in particular is time to innovate in the blue economy. Uh, now's the time to invest in food products that uh, can accrue a premium because they are a restorative of nature. Uh, so whenever we look at food products that we may purchase, we may, we may be told that, well, these have been, these foods have been produced with, without certain level of pesticide or, uh, you know, it's good for um, uh, insect pollinators or uh, that kind of thing. But I think there's, there's opportunity to, uh, both within Guernsey and elsewhere, to be uh, looking at investing in food products that when people buy them, they feel they're not just buying that food product, but they're buying into a whole landscape or environmental restoration outcome as well. So just a few suggestions uh, from me there. Really, really great suggestions. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I'm very much hoping that someone's going to be listening to this and uh, be the person that takes it forward. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today, Bruce. It's been really interesting hearing about the Ecosystems Knowledge Network and how you are working towards improving biodiversity across the UK and equating it as a source of well-being and prosperity. I'd like to also thank you for listening to today's podcast. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast channel, and you can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or a comment. We always love to get your feedback. Now, to learn more about the investable opportunities with biodiversity finance and about Guernsey's sustainable Sustainable Finance offering, you can now register and come to Guernsey for our Sustainable Finance Week, which is being held in Guernsey between the 19th and 23rd of September. We'll be hosting market-leading keynote speakers uh, with um, 
informative panel sessions and an opportunity to network with global and Guernsey leading sustainable finance practitioners. And you can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and we are guernsey.com and interact with us on Twitter at guernseygreenfinance and at we are Guernsey. You can hear more news relating to uh, developments coming out of Guernsey's finance industry by checking the We Are Guernsey podcast on your preferred platform. We've also got links to Bruce and Ecosystems Knowledge Network's social media in our show notes, so check them out to hear more from them. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast.